You've found the place where healthcare's foremost leaders, thinkers, doers all come to share, to inspire, and to build a better healthcare world, one idea at a time. This is Patient No Longer. Welcome in. I'm Ryan Donahue, thought leader, author, and strategic advisor with NRC Health and host of Patient No Longer, the podcast in search of what's new, what's next, and what's making healthcare more human. Welcome back in to another episode of the Patient No Longer podcast, where we are all about humanizing healthcare, and we've got a great guest for it. I've got ePatient Dave with me today. Hello, Dave. Hi. It's great to have you here, and this is the first time, this is a departure, I am not going to even read a few pieces of a bio. I think with you as the guest, I've got to just ask, instead of a bio, tell me, how did you become ePatient Dave? I wasn't planning to be a patient, you know, but about 15 years ago, I discovered that I was almost dead with stage four kidney cancer. And in the process of doing everything I could to help save my life, I was serving as what I now know is called an engaged, empowered patient. And after I got better in less than a year, it was quite an achievement, my oncologist says, He's not sure I could have tolerated enough medicine if I hadn't been so prepared. For people who wonder where the patient should be empowered and engaged, like my opinion is if he says it helped save my life, it's a good thing. Then I discovered a year later that there was a body of work about this thing called e-patients. E-patient is to patient as e-mail is to mail, the electronic digital equivalent. And I just decided to evangelize this on social media. I'd been blogging as Patient Dave, and I changed it to ePatient Dave. Patient no longer. ePatient now, right? Everything's a segue, dude. We're going to have fun here. <laughs> You're great at segues. <laughs> and it's fantastic. I just want to say adding the E to it seems like a small change, but it's a big change. And I think what's helpful to a lot of people out there is you do get a certain segment of Americans who say, I don't understand technology. And, you know, it's a feeling of helplessness sometimes that can creep in. Whereas you took that and you seized that opportunity when you added the E. And the important thing here, some people think that empowered patients ignore doctors. Nothing could be further from the truth. So I was a hippie back in the 1960s and 70s here in Boston in college. And one of the things I learned from the women's movement is that you can face a situation and you might feel, oh, there's nothing I can do about this. That is the voice of somebody who has no power, who is disempowered. And if you flip it around and think, what could I do? It doesn't mean I think I'm going to cure cancer by myself, but then you start to take on some power and become empowered. And then in the ideal situation in today's world, you come up with doctors and health systems that welcome empowered, engaged patients. And that connection is really powerful. What you say about feeling disempowered, I think we've all had that situation where we just feel like the situation's too big or too challenging, the walls are too high, and I just want to give up. But you've really done a lot of work around feeling empowered and taking it one step at a time. And also, you have a mantra that I want to dig right into. Because I think that connects patients to organizations who are receptive to that. And that is let patients help. 
So I love that phrase, let patients help. What do you mean by that? So that is just a superb example of mentoring by a brilliant person. That person's name is Alexandra Drain. Today happens to be her birthday, of all coincidences. And I knew her tangentially through a couple of different pathways. But when I, I got thrust into the newspapers, of all things, when I wrote a blog post about discovering garbage in my medical record, right? So here's empowerment. I'm thinking, how can I help improve my health care and the health system? Nobody had ever heard of me. I looked in my chart, and it's another long story, and I discovered there were a whole bunch of mistakes. And I blogged about it, and the Boston Globe called and said, this is important. We want to write about it, and they put me on page one. I didn't realize it, but this was all happening just as the Economic Recovery Act in 2009 had been written, which included $40 billion for incentives to install EMRs, and part of that discussion was whether patients should be allowed to look at their own chart. Well, I did and found garbage, and it exploded in Washington, D.C. I felt a calling, because people were saying, say more about this, but I didn't want to go bankrupt doing this, right? And I sought mentoring, and Alex Drain bought me a sandwich in the company cafeteria at the company she started, and we sat down and had lunch, and she basically sent me to go sit outside her office in a cubicle and come back with a better thing to call myself than Dave DeBroncart. And what I came back with was that my appeal was, let patients help. And the important thing about that, it ties back to what I just said, it's not about patients being in charge or patients thinking they know everything. The traditional view of the patient's role is that we are the helpless schlumpf who doesn't know anything, so we come to the brilliant doctors and get told what to do. When somebody like me steps up and says to the oncologist, how can I survive the side effects of this deadly treatment? I want medicine to listen and figure out how the patient can help. And it becomes more of a partnership when that happens too, Dave, where you're no longer something that has to be managed or a subject or just a disease that's being treated. Because we hear all the time through our comments through patient experience surveys that NRC Health does that people feel like, well, I'm not even a human in the room. They're just sort of treating the disease, not the person. And that depersonalization is something that is really near and dear to me. And what I hear you describe is more along the lines of a partnership that people can be invested in what their doctor's telling them, follow up through that advice, and be great patients. If someone was listening to this, we'll talk about healthcare and healthcare organizations, but if someone's listening to this that's going to need healthcare at some point, which is everyone, what is a piece of advice you would give them to be an empowered patient? If they don't know what their next experience with healthcare is going to be, we often don't, but if they are wanting to be empowered like you described, What is one step they can take? I'm really glad you asked that because, as it happens, my doctor and I, my primary physician, Danny Sands, and I wrote a book in 2013 called Let Patients Help. It's a tiny thing and it's just bullet points of things to understand and things to do about it. And one of them is how to start being an empowered patient. And I myself do this. 
when you meet a new doctor or nurse, whoever your caregiver is, it's a good idea, as in any relationship, to let them know what kind of person you are. So what I will say is I'm the kind of patient who likes to understand as much as I can. Can I ask some questions? What a great qualifier of the questions. Instead of just coming in and starting to rapid-fire questions. No, what about this? What about that? Blah, 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 blah. Right. Exactly. So it's the beginning of a healthy relationship. I'm thinking about you sort of describing yourself and knowing that one of those first steps is such great advice that I want to talk about me. When you walk into a setting, let's say something lower acuity, I'm going in for a checkup with the doc, and I know this doctor, and I'm walking in. When I get asked for my insurance card, first and foremost, you know, because even if I've gone there a decade, they may not say, hey, Ryan, good to see you. They may say insurance, please, or insurance changes, or they hand me the clipboard, even though I've tried to fill out some online. Do you think that that discourages that ability? I mean, is there a way for that frontline person, that front desk to sort of build the same sort of relationship that you're talking about on the patient side? I wish I had my pocket blood pressure meter with me because the sad reality, but on the other hand, it's an opportunity for phenomenal insight, is that really excellent, participatory, empowering clinicians can be in the back room doing the work while there are jerks at the front desk. Sure. Okay. And I want managers, I want our audience to be thinking as wonderful as the trained medical professionals can be, are the people at the front desk behaving? And the, are they being who you want? Because, you know, patient experience is not just what happens in the doctor visit. So I'll give you an example. Here we are at a hotel that's a member of the Marriott chain. I am Marriott Platinum Elite because of all the travel I've been doing. So in the app last night, There's a chat with us where you can send a message to the front desk, and they come back and they miss half of what I said. I'm thrilled to be in this gorgeous hotel, wonderful, all of that, but the clerical administrative people are like, I don't know, dude. It's a customer service issue. You're right. One of the things I love about the whole NRC Health approach is that you can learn about this if you're willing to listen right, to patients who are in surveys. But if all you do is ask 27 predefined questions and you fail to take other feedback or comments, you're squandering the opportunity. That kind of survey thinks, look, I know what I want to hear about. Nothing else is of interest to me, and that's a fail. Let's talk about patient experience, because this is something that you've dedicated much of the last 15 years on, and it's near and dear to you. And I want to talk about it from, let's zoom out and talk about the industry. So, you know, there's a lot of cynicism in the industry right now, which there's reasons why we're facing a lot of challenges. But I feel like around patient experience, there's quite a bit of cynicism. There's a feeling that it's stagnant. There's a feeling that we've spent so much time and effort. I mean, think about the advent of HCAPs. It's been 15 years since it was publicly reported, 17 since we started collecting it. Is that your assessment that we haven't gotten much out of that work? Your vantage point is so unique. So do you feel like as an industry, we're kind of flat, like some people would suggest, or have you seen some bright spots in the work that's been done? Objection, Your Honor, leading the witness. (laughs) I do that from time to time. First of all, it's useful to remember that there was 
immense grumbling when HCAPs came along. Of course. Like, oh, what are you doing telling me that how I get paid is going to be influenced by something else now that they never taught me about this? And You mentioned the EMR not showing it to the patients was a controversy. There was controversy around publicly reporting the data. We'll, we'll collect it from patients, but we don't want to show patients. So, so what I learned, you know, before cancer and before I started doing the keynote speeches, I worked in various industries in marketing. And it's a very different perspective to think of the people in healthcare management positions in the context of the people I knew as vice presidents or C-level or other managers in other industries. Everybody is concerned about how's my career going? How's the job doing? Are we being something that I can be proud of? Am I proud of myself? And so on. And when the rules change, it is a problem. And people in general don't like things that destabilize their lives. Everybody just went through three years of that with of COVID. Course. I mean, I never had any preparation. This is everybody. Any preparation on this. So the other side of it, though, for people to think about is that as we all try to make things better, we will come up with something new that we pursue. And then we, you know, it may not be regulators in some industries. It may be competitors. It may be some disruptive innovation that threatens your existence. So we try to move forward with the new stuff. Then as something advances, a great example, believe it or not, I'm old enough, I remember when seatbelts became mandatory. Okay? Cars were great, but people were dying in them. We right. needed to do something. Sure, things are changing because it turns out healthcare got to the point where it was uncaring in some cases because the emphasis for a long time was better and better medical science, which is great. But then the citizens started screaming or asking for improvement. So it's a continuous dance as we move forward. The thing that I've got to say, though, some people think that when people like me talk like this, we're complaining. But I'll tell you what, I am alive because medicine works a heck of a lot better than it did a half century ago, right? And if we view it as an us versus them shoving match, that's the wrong context. If we view it as continually pulling forward and then pulling forward from the other side, moving forward together as a partnership, right? we will keep improving. Less tug of war and maybe more. We're grabbing the rope together and hauling a really big semi behind us. I mean, this change is not easy to do. It's funny you brought up innovation, Dave. I'm actually rereading one of my favorite books, which is The Innovator's Dilemma by Clay Christensen. And he talks about industries that go through these massive changes. And he talks about how you have to be really careful about listening to your current customers and the way you've done things and those constituents and start listening to new voices, which might be smaller voices, might be a technology that's not prevalent yet. And yet there can be the magic and that might be the change that's coming your way in a few short years. You talk about patients as healthcare citizens and citizens of their own health. And one other thing that you mentioned is amplifying those voices. So the voices of these citizens that they're not drowned out by all the noise around us inside the organization. What is something someone listening to this can say or do to better amplify the patient's voice? If the patient's not able to do it themselves, if they're not like e-patient Dave, ready to go out there and, and blaze a trail, 
could someone in the organization help amplify those patient voices? A little background point before I answer. One of the things that drove me nuts when I was dying, I mean, my median survival at diagnosis was 24 weeks. People as sick as me were dead within six months, okay? So I had a lot at stake at how this was working out. And the doctors and the nurses and the nurse practitioners were all doing amazing things. And then in the middle of this series of hospitalizations, I get this stupid paper survey in the mail asking me about my experience in my recent visit. And it didn't say which of my recent visits. Now, the thing that really drove me nuts because of my experience in management and other industries was I knew somebody was going to be absorbing this thing, looking at it, and thinking what I say is significant when I didn't even know which event they were talking about. And then there's this particular question. Was there any particular nurse that you would like to acknowledge for doing a good job? <laughs> like, are you people thinking? Now, I understand that that survey was probably being sent out because somebody required it. Part Administrative but requirement. But think, people. You know, you're smart. To get back to your question, first of all, not just amplifying patient voices, but let's think about the relevance and accuracy and juiciness and meaningfulness of the patient voices. And that starts, I say this firsthand, with listening to what goes wrong and right in real time. All right. And I mean promptly, I don't mean three months later. Exactly. It's important because one of the subjects that I've gotten fascinated in is I've tried to discover why people resist change. There's this field called behavioral economics, like nudges and things like that. And one of the points that I just reread uh, this fabulous book, Thinking Fast and Slow, that was a bestseller 10 years ago, one of the things they point out is that all feedback has much more impact when it's prompt. Learning happens better if you know it's a mistake or it worked well right at the moment. The perfect example is driving a car. You know, if you take a left turn and run into a stoplight, you know pretty quickly you get that feedback. By the way, three months ago, you ran into a stoplight. We might call that feedback real time. Exactly. Well, but that's my point. Start first with listening more effectively. Because you have a commitment to find meaningful things, then you can amplify those. It's funny you say listen more effectively. We asked a specific question to consumers in the Market Insight Survey, our consumer panel, across the country. And it was specific to consumers who had a positive relationship with their physician. So there wasn't mm -hmm. just anybody or maybe you don't have a doctor because some people don't. And we said, what makes you have that positive relationship? What drives that positive relationship with your physician? Number one answer. It's not quality care. It wasn't awards a physician had won. It was listens to my needs. Listens to me, Dave. That's so powerful. And what you're saying real time is what the data tells us as well. Let's take a little break from healthcare. Let's go to a newer feature that we have. I'm going to hit you top wait, of mind. Wait, wait, wait. No, there's no time to prepare, Dave. <laughs> Dave likes to prepare, by the way, but he cannot. So this is the speed round. Just some light questions to get to know you better. Coke or Pepsi? Believe it or not, water. Okay. Points for healthy. Fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction for this guy. Okay. Morning person or night owl? I have flipped on that. The way I describe it is 
I used to be more likely to see 5 a.m. after it followed 1, 2, 3, and 4 a.m. <laughs> but now I'm waking up at 5 a.m. without alarm clocks. Wow. That's, so I I've heard flipped. that that's a good sign of health, not needing an alarm clock. I've heard up. it's a sign of getting old. <laughs> Maybe that too. All right. Favorite TV show of all time? You know, I am such a passive consumer <laughs> sure. of media. I can't really give you a good answer on that. Okay. I will say that I am going back to see Barbie again. Okay. So maybe favorite movie that's emerging. Well, at the moment. That's wonderful. I would love to see you at the Barbie movie. But one more question on the speed round. Boston or New York? Dude. <laughs> I have to ask for consistency. For a half century, I've been in Boston. I knew that now, answer. I love going to New York, but it's like I am much more immersed. Before you're impatient, Dave, you're Boston, Dave. Let's get back into healthcare. And there's one particular issue I want to make sure we cover, and that is price transparency, or as you call it, visible prices or visible pricing, which I like the way you say that. This has been a long struggle, Dave, to get the visible pricing. And it's something that I think as an industry, we sort of put on the shelf for a while. Are we going to, at some point, you think, get to visible prices? Well, are we going to? In my day, back in the hippie days, we would say, come the revolution. Sure. Right? And all it will take, and steps are already happening in this direction, all it will take is regulations where the government says, you are not getting paid for anything unless you've got prices posted and you stick to them. Okay. And that's starting because they're steepening those penalties. I think that's where you're going is if we say, listen, we're going to withhold more and more funds, something's got to get. Well, and I mean, what other industry, uh, lots of people have said this, in what other industry do you find out what the car costs after you bought it Yeah. or what the bill is for a meal? A little known fact is that I got my degree from the Sloan School, bachelor's degree from the Sloan School. It's pretty simple, basic management stuff that for a market to function, you got to have buyers and sellers and a price. And here, everybody knows in healthcare, we've got this perverse setup of the intermediary and secret agreements on what the prices actually are. And the powerful transformational thing will be when everybody is required to publish prices so yeah. here's something just to tie this all together. In this gorgeous hotel, there is a Brazilian restaurant on the first floor. And when I was looking for where to go for dinner last night, I just looked into it. I know it's a pretty pricey chain and I'm on a limited expense account. So I looked and they have this ad on their home page, $39 dinner, including everything. So I booked on open table and I took the elevator down and I went in there. And the woman at the reception, the hostess, very politely said, oh, we don't have that anymore. Davey takes out his flamethrower and sets his <laughs> hair on fire. Pull the ad then, right? They but, should honor uh, but, it. So what do you do now? Do you think there's nothing I can do about this? I'm just going to be mad. Yeah. Right? Or do you take action? What they said was, we have this $46 thing now. The other one ended two days ago. What can I say that will make a difference? Right. And so, yeah, I pulled out the ad and I said, no, I don't want the $46 thing. I want the thing you advertised. Yeah. She said, I'll get the manager. 
and the manager came over. All the different things that I've been through with acquiring different amounts of healthcare. I'll add one more anecdote on this, but it is really, really important because it ties together these several points. And if it doesn't fit, you can cut it out. Sure. But before I became old enough to go on Medicare, all right, when I left my day job and became self-insured or by private insurance, uh, I called my Blue Cross, which was the company at the time that it had my company insurance and wanted to convert it from COBRA to private pay. And they said, great, we'll set you up. And they started going through the questions. And then they said, have you ever had cancer? And I said, yes. And they said, well, that disqualifies you in New Hampshire. And so I was cast off into the high risk pool. Of course. I ended up on a high deductible plan. And for me, Today, high deductible is like $2,000 deductible. This was $10,000 deductible. So then it turns out I had a little skin cancer on my jaw. I was going to have to pay for it myself. And so I asked the dermatologist, how much is this going to cost? And he said, I don't know. We eventually figured out that what I had to do was get the CPT codes for the stuff that would be done, and then I could talk to the billing people. Because this was not urgent, I spent three months calling around, you know, a basal cell on the chin is not going to kill you. And as an experiment, I blogged it all, made up a spreadsheet and a cross-tabulation and everything, and I found out that it would cost somewhere between four and $7,000 for the same stuff at three different hospitals. But then when I went in to have that done, the dermatologist said, well, you know, it's really interesting that you're so involved in this. If you're self-pay, you might want to consider this thing called EDNC. And I said, what will that cost? And he said, I don't know. You'd probably $685. Wow. Because I did the work. Right, and made a point of being super informed. I wasn't under any time pressure. My point here is that for healthcare leaders who are really interested in improving, solving, addressing the cost problem, and so on, if we can develop ways to put information in the hands of consumers, it doesn't mean everything will change instantly because consumers, patients have to change their behavior also. Right. But we can start heading toward that new world. It's let patients help. And another one of the aphorisms in my book is we perform better if we're informed better. You know, and the wisecrack that follows that is it's perverse to keep us in the dark and then tell people we're ignorant. I agree with you completely. And we'll link to your book in the description as well if people want to check that out. I think the work that you're doing here is so interesting and so necessary. And my hope is that not every patient has to go to that level of work that you've done and that the system and the organizations really help that and make that easier. But social change takes time. It does. Again, there are so many parallels between the patient movement and the women's movement. If you've ever seen a photo of Susan B. Anthony near the end of her life, she is one pissed off woman. Yeah, sure. Right? And for good reason. And here we are today. That's why 
change leaders need yeah. to lead change and don't be pushed back. Right, or it'll never happen. I have to ask you one more question. We ask everyone this. So you've encountered someone on their first day of their first job in healthcare. So this is day one in healthcare. What is one piece of advice you would give that person on day one? You've chosen a noble calling. And believe me, I thought about this when I was lying in that hospital bed dying and I was being treated by these highly trained people. I would think every one of them did well in school and there was some moment where they thought, you know, I could go into healthcare, whether it's a doctor, a nurse, whoever it might be. Sure. You've chosen a noble calling, but because so much money is involved, there will be strong headwinds pushing back, saying, be careful to protect the money, even if care has to suffer. But never forget that care is the only part of it that's in healthcare, right? right? And keep doing it. Be strong and stay committed to why you went into the field in the first place. That's fantastic. I think everybody would benefit from an elevator ride with the patient day, <laughs> whether it's day one or day 10,000. So this was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. E-Patient Dave, we will link to your blog. We'll link to your books. And you've got a great voice out there fighting for patients. We appreciate you bringing that to the podcast. Well, I'm so glad, really so glad that NRC Health is carrying the same flag forward. We'll carry that flag together. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. And we will talk to you again soon. And that's the show. Thank you for joining us today as we exchange ideas, share struggles, and celebrate triumphs. Come back next month as we continue our journey through the magical and maddening world of healthcare. Never miss a show. Subscribe at nrchealth.com slash patient no longer or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Ryan Donahue, and you've been listening to Patient No Longer, a presentation of NRC Health, the founders and lead architects of human understanding in healthcare. Until next time. Dr. Sarah Gard Lazarus joins the podcast next week to provide her unique perspective as a physician who says her experience as a waitress provided some of the best education on patient interactions. The restaurant industry has done a lot of research on how long it waits before you know you kind of realize that you put in your order a while. And I'm sure as a waitress, you could pick up on that immediately. What's new in terms of wait times or just people's demeanor as they come into a place like the emergency room? Well, that's a great question, Ryan. And we know that wait times are a determining factor of patient family experience. And we know that 75% of patients overestimate their wait times. So making sure that we apologize right away when we come in and say, you know, we're recognizing that you've been waiting for the service, you've been waiting to be seen. You don't want to miss out. Make sure you subscribe and follow Patient No Longer wherever you get your podcasts.